So we're still in Revelation chapter 11, and tonight we want to walk through verses 7 through 14. We've been journeying through this chapter over the last few weeks and this section over the last month. We have come again to an interlude, a space between the major story of the Revelation and the the series of judgments that are being poured out. You remember that the Revelation contains three sets of judgments. First, there are the seal judgments, then there are the trumpet judgments, and then we will come in short order to the bowl judgments. With each set of judgments, we have an increasing measure of God's justice, judgment, wrath, condemnation poured out upon the world. And between each of these sets of judgments, we have spaces. There are, uh, there's an interlude, a space between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. We read about that in chapter 7. And then there's a, an interlude here in chapters 10 and 11 that takes the, the place between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. We understand that these interludes, these spaces between, are ways of pausing the narrative of judgment in order to reassure God's people that we are held fast by him, that we are under his authority and sealed by his spirit, counted among his people. Indeed, indeed we are a people who have been measured in his temple. And so here we find that in the midst of this interlude of chapter 11, God is demonstrating that we will always know as his people the security of dwelling in his presence, whether that comes in this life or in the life to come. So the chapter began in verses 1 and 2 with the measuring of the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. You remember that we talked about the fact that that's a symbol, it's a representation not of a literal temple, but of the temple that is God's people, his house. And so the temple, the worshipers, the altar, all of these are ways of conveying that God is measuring his people. He knows his people inside and out. He knows their their fullness. He knows all of them. He doesn't leave anybody beside. But John was told, don't measure the the outside of the temple. Indeed, he was told that it, the outer court, given over to the Gentiles, indeed the holy city itself, would be trampled by the nations for 42 months. And then John was told that there would be these two witnesses that would prophesy for 1,260 days. And you remember that we said the 42 months and the 1,260 days Or, as we will see in another place, time, times, and half a time. It's a way of referring to a time, a short time, a designated, intense period of time in which which God's activity is at work through his people. In verse 3, we were introduced to these two witnesses. And in verse 4, we were told that the two witnesses are two olive trees and uh, they are also two lampstands. And then later, in, on in verse 6, we're told that, uh, that these are two prophets as well. And so the two witnesses, they are two lampstands, they are two olive trees, they are two prophets. That's the way of telling us that these two witnesses are not just two individual people. Remember that John told us in chapter 1 that the lampstand is a symbol of the church. It's a symbol of the people of God. 
And whenever we are told what a symbol means, we should let that symbol stand until we're told that it means something else. And so we understand that the witnesses, the lampstands, the prophets, and the olive trees are all ways of talking about the whole church, the whole people of God, all of God's witnesses in the world. That's important as we now come to see that their witness unto, unto the world becomes a witness unto death in chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, and then a witness unto eternal life in verses 12 through 14. I want you to see first their witness unto death in verses 7 to 10. John says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So when the witnesses of God, the church, finish their witnessing, they will face death. You remember that the word for witness here is the word martyrios. It's the word from which we derive our word martyr. When we think of a martyr, we think of someone who dies on account of what they believe. But recall that in the first century, a martyr was not, was not first and foremost someone who dies on account of what they believe. It was a testifier, a witness, someone who declared what they had seen and heard and experienced. And so the witness is witness. They testify. They say to the world, this is what we have seen and heard and received and learned, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. These are people who are experiencing Jesus, and then they are telling the world about him. But then the time will come when they will finish their witnessing. And when they do, they will face death. This is not the first time that we've heard such language. Remember that in chapter 6 and verse 9, John saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. Here again, John is reminded that every witness of Jesus is a witness unto death, either by persisting in the proclamation of the gospel and making of disciples until their natural death, or by their losing their life at the hands of unbelievers. While Christian people have throughout the history of the church often sacrificed their lives on account of the word of God and their testimony, the vision John is given of a time at the end of days, increasingly close to the day of the Lord, when the mission of the church to make disciples will draw to a close, and when there will be unleashed one who is empowered by satanic force to persecute the people of God in an intense, pointed way. This one who is filled with satanic force is introduced to us in chapter 11 and verse 7 as the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit or abyss from which the beast rises was introduced in chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. There the fifth angel blew his trumpet and John witnessed the opening of the shaft of the bottomless pit out of which came a horde of scorpion-like locusts that inflicted great pain on a third of the earth, causing the world to long for death 
that they might be delivered. Just as an angel opened the bottomless pit in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we will see an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And he seized and bound Satan there and locked him away in the pit during the millennial reign of Christ. So the bottomless pit, the abyss, is a place where the devil and demonic beings presently dwell and will dwell until their final condemnation. They dwell there by the authority of God who determines when they are bound and loosed. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit in 11.7 makes war on, conquers, and kills the two witnesses. And we recall that the two witnesses are two olive trees, that are two lampstands, that are two prophets. And so we understand that these witnesses are the church, the whole people of God. So for John to say in verse 7 that the beast makes war on, conquers, and kills the witnesses is to say that the beast makes war on, conquers, and kills the church. Maybe this is figurative language. It doesn't necessarily refer to the entirety of the church being slaughtered, but it does mean that a significant onslaught, a, a great martyrdom will take place. It will mean the taking of the lives of the great many of the saints of God. And so John foresees here a ruler who will profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, and pervert the worship of God. And as John sees this, he's being led by the Holy Spirit who is building upon other visions and teachings that have been revealed through the prophets, the apostles, and the Lord Jesus himself. So we want to spend much of our time thinking about four images. First, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. And then we want to think about the abomination of desolation in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And then we want to consider the man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then we want for a moment to consider what John has to say in his first and second letters about the Antichrist. First, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. In the background of this passage is the vision of Daniel 7. There the prophet saw a vision in which four great beasts came up out of the sea. Daniel was told that these four great beasts were four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But in contrast to their temporary power, he was told that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The fourth beast that Daniel saw was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. Daniel says that it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. When Daniel desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, he saw that one of the horns that rose on the beast made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. This fourth beast, Daniel was told, would be a fourth kingdom on the earth that would trample down the whole earth and out of it would rise a king different from those who had come before that would, quote, speak words against the Most High, wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and the law. This ruler would reign for a time, times, and half a time, like 42 months. 
like 1,260 days, like three and a half years. Remember, that's just a symbol of a short but intense period of time. But in the end, this ruler's dominion would be taken away and all the kingdoms under heaven would be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So what Daniel saw was an end-time ruler who will profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, and pervert the worship of God. The same sorts of things that John sees the beast doing in chapter 11 and chapter 13 of the Revelation. This ruler of Daniel, though powerful and effective, will ultimately be crushed beneath the enduring reign of the Most High who will fight for his people. Then we think about a second image, that of the abomination of desolation. The essence of what Daniel saw pushes us to what Jesus taught. In Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, Jesus is teaching in the last week of his ministry prior to his crucifixion. And in that discourse, the disciples approached Jesus and said, Would you tell us, how can we know the signs of when you will come again? What are we to look for? Much of what Jesus wrote about, about his coming, the Greek word for coming there is parousia. It's the coming. It's his, it's his advent, his final one. Much of what Jesus wrote about, talked about, that's recorded in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, has already been accomplished in human history. In fact, many of these things were accomplished in the time period of the apostles themselves. However, Jesus pointed to an end-time event as well, one that would signal the nearness of his return. That sign is the abomination of desolation. It was, the first, it was first spoken of by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 9 and 27. This abomination of desolation, according to Daniel, would be marked by the end of the true worship of God. Indeed, Daniel said that when that happens, he will put an end. The, the great perverter of God's worship would put an end to sacrifice and offering. And the true worship of God would be replaced by the worship of this evil one himself until decisive destruction came upon him. While initially what Daniel was prophesying in Daniel 9 was realized in the year 167 B.C., in the, in the great desolation and desecration of the temple during the reign of the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes when a pig was slaughtered on the altar of the temple, it wasn't fully realized then. There was something more. Jesus is relying upon that vision of Daniel, knowing the background of what happened in 167 B.C., to describe the events surrounding his final coming. Jesus teaches his disciples that the days leading to his return will be marked by false Christs and false prophets who will arise and perform signs and wonders. It's important for us to understand that the sorts of things that will take place at the hands of evil, wicked men, many of them rulers in the world, as the day of Jesus' return approaches, these are not mere magic tricks. They aren't parlor games. These are not sleights of hand. They are real signs and wonders performed not through the power of the Spirit, but through satanic power, power that is derived from the evil one. 
that age that leads up to Jesus' return, Jesus says it is marked by a great tribulation, as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. In fact, in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, Jesus declares that after the great tribulation of those days, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Daniel, in chapter 7, saw a beast. And that beast signified a time that where we would see the profanation of God's name and the persecution of God's people and the perversion of God's worship. Well, Jesus, building on the vision of Daniel 9, foresaw in the abomination of desolation the rise of a wicked ruler who would come to the forefront of human history to profane the name of God and persecute the people of God and pervert the worship of God. Like the vision of Daniel 7, this ruler will be powerful and effective to the point that if his sway was not cut short, the elect would be deceived. Indeed, he will ultimately be crushed even as the Son of Man comes again, dispatching his angels to gather his elect from throughout the earth. So the beast of Daniel 7 and the abomination of desolation of Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And then there's a third vision, image, that we must consider. It's the man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul continued to build upon the visions of Daniel and the teachings of Jesus as he wrote to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonian church struggled to understand the issues of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had to straighten them out on the nature of the resurrection of those who died in the Lord, as well as of those who are alive at the final coming of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul writes of the coming of the Lord himself and the rising of those who are dead in Christ as the catching up. Now, we know that to be... Uh, termed as the rapture, but rapture is not a New Testament word. It's a Latin word that seems to render what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the catching up of the church. But it's interesting that both times that the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Thessalonians that he talks about the parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus, he also does so in conjunction with talking about the catching up, the great rapture of the church. And so I think what we're to understand, Paul's saying, is that the coming of the Lord Jesus and the catching up of Jesus' people, these are simultaneous events. They happen at the same time. They come hand in hand. For indeed, Paul presents them that way both times he talks about them. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about these two events. He says that that day, in talking about the coming, the parousia, and in talking about the catching up, that day singular will not come, he says, quote, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, or you might know the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, if you remember what Daniel talked about in chapters 7 and 9 and what Jesus has described in the abomination of desolation, it's not hard to see the connection here. Paul is describing the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, as one who will profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, and pervert the worship of God by attempting to establish himself in God's place and deceive people into worshiping him. But this one will be killed by Jesus, who at his final coming will cause what little power that man possessed to be brought to nothing. Indeed, Paul says he will be killed by the breath of Jesus' mouth. So here we've had three visions, three images. A beast in Daniel 7, a beast who is a ruler who will rise to profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, pervert the worship of God. And when Jesus describes the abomination of desolation, this sign, this signal of his return's imminence, he talks about it as a time when there will be the profanation of God's name, the persecution of God's people, the perversion of God's worship. And these are the same sorts of things that will characterize the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, as he carries out his satanic efforts in the world. Before we come back to chapter 11 of the Revelation, though, we have to consider one other image, the Antichrist. Is there anything that symbolizes what we know about the end of days more than Antichrist? We, when we think about eschatology, the end of days, when we think about the return of the Lord Jesus, when we think about what happens in the time of, of uh, between his coming and between the final destruction of humanity in rebellion against him and all the forces of evil in rebellion against him, we certainly think about the sway of the Antichrist. There's only one small problem with that. The idea of the Antichrist is not found anywhere in the Revelation itself. It's never spoke of in the singular, exclusive. It's not just one person in the Scriptures. Instead, this is a title that John uses in his first and second letters for anyone, anyone who refuses to confess that Jesus is the Christ and for the spirit of such opposition to Jesus. And so several times we have John write about Antichrist. In chapter 2, in verse 18 of his first letter, John tells us that many Antichrists have come. And going on in that chapter, in verse 22, he writes that the Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son by denying that Jesus is the Christ. In 1 John 4, in verse 3, John says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, but is the spirit of Antichrist. And then in chapter, uh, in, the, in the seventh verse of his second letter, John says that everyone who does not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So while we can use the term Antichrist to refer to this end-of-age ruler who will profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, and pervert the worship of God, equal to the man of lawlessness and the beast, the one who enacts the abomination of desolation even, 
we should understand that that term is not used in the Revelation itself. We want to be clear about where that term comes from and how John intends for us to understand it. While John tells us about the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, who makes war on the two witnesses, he is describing Daniel's fourth beast, Jesus' abomination of desolation, Paul's man of lawlessness, and his own spirit of antichrist. There will be, at the end of days, after the bulk of the work of the Lord's church has been completed, an intense tribulation during which God will pour out increasing measures of judgment upon the nations in order to turn their hearts. But as their hearts remain idolatrous, one will rise from their midst with satanic power to be the leader of attack against the church, all of God's witnesses, even as he holds increasing sway over the kingdoms of this world. As we keep going through the Revelation, John will tell us more about this beast. In fact, we'll learn more about it in chapter 13 and see that this beast rises from the sea, that is the sea of the nations, of humanity itself. So this is a real person. It's a person filled with a satanic spirit. It's a person bent on satanic power. And this real beast will be a part of an unholy trinity, a faithless trinity, one with Satan himself represented by the dragon and one with the false prophet that John will tell us about. But for now, just consider what John says in chapter 11 and verse 7. The beast will make war on them, the witnesses, and conquer them, the witnesses, and kill them, the witnesses. One of the ways that we know this beast is linked to the beast of chapter 13 is the imagery of conquering the saints. Uh, The word here is the word for overcome, And every time that this word is used in the Revelation, it speaks of the conquering or overcoming of the saints as they overcome persecution or trial or even death. Or it speaks of Jesus' conquering or overcoming uh, as he conquers all the things that rise against his people and endures even the judgment of this world in his crucifixion in order to accomplish life for his own. Only in two places is this word used to describe the prevalence, the conquering of an evil force here in chapter 11 and verse 7 and then in chapter 13. So these beasts are linked together. They're one and the same. As if death was not enough, the beast and those who dwell on the earth, they pour out shame and dishonor on the witnesses of God as their dead bodies lie in the, great, in the street of the great city. Three things are happening here. First, the dead bodies are on display. This allows all those who dwell on the earth, the unbelieving world, right? Remember that John uses that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, as a symbol of the unbelievers. It allows those who dwell on the earth to see the power of the beast. Second, the dead bodies are not buried. This allows the unbelieving world to show complete disregard for the witnesses of God. Refusing to bury a dead body would certainly be, in our day, an act of of indecency. It's, It's complete disregard. It was even more so in their day. It was extreme indignity. Third thing that's happening here is that the unbelieving world sees the power of the beast, the shame of the witnesses, and then rejoices over them and makes merry and exchanges presents. 
This is a a way of celebrating that they are no longer tortured by the preaching of the gospel. In fact, it says in chapter 11 and verse 10 that they rejoice over them because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That word torment is the word for torture. It's, it's the word for an examination by persecution. What John is saying is that the message of the gospel has been torturing the world. It tortures the world because the world doesn't receive it. It tortures the world because the world rejects it. Either the message of the gospel helps us in our relationship to holy God, or it hardens us away from him. The people who dwell on the earth, the unbelievers, they have long endured the preaching of the gospel as torturous. And now they celebrate because they've come to the end of their torture as the messengers of the gospel are silenced in death. At many points in the Revelation, we're reminded that John is seeing visions that symbolically represent literal things, but that are not literal in and of themselves. At this juncture, that point is made explicit, right? Because John says that he sees the bodies of the witnesses lying in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Translated symbolically, the word here is pneumatikos. It's an adverb derived from the word pneumas or pneuma. It's the word for spirit in the Greek. And so what John is saying here is that he's seeing a great city that is symbolically or figuratively, we might even read in some translations, mystically, or we could even say spiritually. This city is spiritually representative representative of Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. Now you remember that the two witnesses are not literally two witnesses. They're the church, the whole people of God. And so they're not dying in just one literal place, one literal city. They are dying across the whole world. This is a widespread, worldwide slaughter of the church. My New Testament professor, Bill Cook, is helpful here in thinking then about what does John mean in describing this great city as Sodom, Egypt, and the the place where our Lord was crucified. He says that the great city is a reference to Rome, He says it's figuratively called Sodom, which is a place of gross immorality, and Egypt, a place where the people of God were oppressed and enslaved. And because it's called the place where their Lord was crucified, we know that to be Jerusalem. And so Cook says there's no one city where these four indicators can be literally present at one time. It's a symbol. It represents the world in persecution of the church. The world looks like Rome with massive armies and political power. The world looks like Sodom filled with sexual immorality. The world looks like Egypt oppressing the people of God. And the world looks like Jerusalem where Christ himself was persecuted. So the people of God, the church, will at the end of days, when they are through with their witnessing to the world, experience widespread universal persecution at the hand of the beast, a man filled with satanic power who will orchestrate an attack on the people of God at the hand uh, as he profanes the name of God and perverts the worship of God. The persecution of the church throughout the world will result in the widespread martyrdom of the witnesses. Though not all may die, the death of the saints will be so widespread that it may as well be said 
they died, all of them. And these things will happen just prior to the final coming of Christ, his parousia, and the catching up of his people, what we know as the rapture. So I want to ask you a question. Is your testimony so strong that it is torturous to the world? I don't mean by that question, do you have a story of deliverance from something the world would call grave, monumental sin? I don't mean, do you have a testimony, a witness of some grand act in your life where you were suffering through physical hardship and God brought you through? Those things may certainly be true and useful to the Lord's work. I mean, is your confident hope in Jesus Christ So strong is your trust of the truthfulness of his gospel so strong? Is your belief that Jesus is your only hope in life and in death so strong that it is torturous to the world? That the unbelievers in your life, the unbelievers that you interact with in your place of business or in the places where you go to work each day, is the unbeliever in your life tortured, bothered, undone by your witness of Jesus? Not because you, you seek to annoy or bother, not because you desire to be so forceful in your presentation of truth that You prevail against their worst qualities but because your sheer devotion to Jesus highlights and demonstrates and shows just how far they are from him. And they would rather not be so bothered. Would that it was said of all of us that our testimony for Jesus Christ was torturous to the world, that it caused those who were unbelieving to wrestle, wanted to combine wrestle and reckon there, to wrestle with their faith or lack thereof. And as they go on in their unbelief, to be bothered by the people of God. John talks about these witnesses unto death, and then he talks about these witnesses raised to life in verses 11 through 14. He says there that after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. John writes that the witnesses were left in the streets dead while the world rejoiced in their slaughter. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. In chapter 11 and verse 2, remember that John was told that the holy city was symbolic of the people of God And it would be trampled for 42 months or three and a half years. This length of time was equal to the time the witnesses would prophesy in verse 3, 1,260 days. 
And there we determine that this length of time was a traditional symbol for a limited period of time in which evil would abound. And it meant that while it will be fierce, it will also be short and it will come to an end. In a similar way, we should see these three and a half days symbolically. Where the witness of the church to the world is lengthy, their witness unto death comes suddenly. And their witness unto life eternal follows their martyrdom soon. We're reminded here of the vision of Ezekiel chapter 37. There the prophet was led by the Spirit of the Lord into a valley full of bones. And the Spirit of the Lord asked Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And then he was commanded to prophesy over the bones that the Lord would cause them to live again by his very breath. As Ezekiel prophesied, the bones were raised to life and Ezekiel was bid to call the breath forth from the four winds that they might breathe on these slain, that they might live. And they did. Ezekiel was told that the bones were the whole house of Israel without hope and cut off from God. This was God's way of saying that he would bring his people from death to life and cause them to inhabit their land again. Ezekiel's prophecy was realized initially in the return of Israel from exile. But if you read the fullness of Ezekiel 37, you're caused to expect more than just the temporal, earthly restoration of Israel to her rightful land. Indeed, in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 28, the prophet is told, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Ezekiel's vision finds fulfillment in the coming of the Lord's Christ, both the first and final times. Jesus is the David figure, God's servant, and Israel's forever prince. The eternal covenant of peace that God makes with His people is the new covenant grounded in the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out willingly for the sins of the whole world. God tabernacling with His people as their God and them as His people is a future reality that does not occur in the promised land of temporal, earthly Israel, but in the promised land of true Israel, namely the new heaven and the new earth. Understanding that these witnesses are symbolic of the whole people of God and that the church has experienced widespread martyrdom seen on the world stage, celebrated by the unbelieving world, we now begin to understand that the resurrection of the witnesses after three and a half days is symbolic of the resurrection of the church at the last day. Indeed, Mounts is correct when he asserts that this is a sure indication that God possesses ultimate authority over life and death. Say, so, preacher, what's going on here? I see chapter 11, verses 7 through 14 as a flash forward. 
We're getting close to the end of days. And as we draw close to the day of the Lord, there will be the release of the beast, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who will bring about the abomination of desolation. He will bring that into a world where he will profane the name of God, persecute the people of God, and pervert the worship of God. The persecution of the people of God will result in the widespread martyrdom death of Christian people, so comprehensive that it could be said the witness of the church has died. And then, in verses 11 and 12, flashing forward ever so slightly to the day of the Lord, which would soon come at that point in human history, the Lord will raise his church. The resurrection of the witnesses in verses 11 and 12 is public, as will be the rapture of the church. All God's people will be visibly raised to the presence of God, never more to be separated from him. Recall what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18. He writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Indeed, what Paul writes as a cry of command is what John and the witnesses and the world hears in verse 12. Come up here. And they do. The witnesses are translated up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watch them. Ezekiel 38, 19 to 20 and Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 4 remind us that the day of the Lord will be accompanied by shattering natural disasters. So it should not surprise us that John saw at the hour of the resurrection of the witnesses and the coming of the Lord a great earthquake. To be consistent, we must remember that the great city is representative of the whole world. So this destructive force described in verse 13 is not confined to one place. It is a worldwide phenomenon. Robert Mounts writes that the tenth part of the city that collapsed would be a sizable portion, but not enough to disable it. The figure of 7,000 does not seem to have any particular meaning beyond serving to indicate the approximate number of individuals in a tenth of a good-sized city in John's day. John writes that the rest of those in the city were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This should not be seen as a sign of conversion, for at this point the end of days has come. Instead, it is a sign not of their worship, but of their witness. They are now acknowledging the legitimacy of the God of heaven and his claims on their lives, claims that in their lifetime they continually rejected and which now they have no hope of embracing. And so John concludes, the second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. Why has John taken us, and why has John been taken through this vision, this vision of God's people measured This vision of God's people bearing witness to the world, witness unto death, and witness unto life eternal. It's because the Father desires for us to be comforted and encouraged, 
Not to be undone as these days approach. Remember that this book, it doesn't promise a curse. It promises blessing. Those who read these words and those who heed them, they find real blessing. The people of God should be encouraged by this book. And so while there are so many things written in this revelation that are strange and difficult and even troubling, while there are soundings of alarm and warning And while there is a witness to the certain wrath of God that will be poured out on Satan and all those aligned with him, these words are given to the people of God to comfort us, to know that we are sealed by his spirit, counted among his people, and measured in his house forever to dwell with him as our God and he with us as his people. Father, I pray that as we consider that the end of days will come, in fact, it is coming soon, I pray that we might be faithful to the Lord Jesus to the end. And if our end comes naturally in this world, as we come to the ordinary course of a human life, then may God we give with every ounce of strength we have a torturous testimony of Jesus. And I also pray, God, that should the days hasten and should night draw close and should the Master's return be soon, very soon, such that widespread persecution of the church breaks out and the profanation of the name of God occurs throughout the world, and the perversion of true and right worship takes place, then may we who are tortured on account of our faith still bear a faithful testimony of Jesus Christ, not in our human strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit, who has sealed us, numbered us, and counted us into your house, your people forever. May we look forward to that day when Jesus indeed comes again and all those who have died in the Lord and all those who remain are forever caught up with him. And may we take comfort in knowing that one day the beast and the dragon, and the false prophet, and all those aligned with them will be destroyed forever, removed forever from your holy presence, never to attack your people again. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.